G'day, man. Quarty here, going out live right now across Rumble, across YouTube, across Twitter, Facebook, and Odyssey. So Kanye West is apparently married an Australian. So Bianca Sensori, an architect who was working for him. And I see here a lot of chatter that she's Jewish, but uh, I, I can't find any evidence that she's Jewish. Bianca Sensori, right? that's not a typical Jewish name. Let's go to the Kino Casino. Group to me still because I don't want to. I don't want to be enemies with Nick. I actually respect Nick. But what I'm saying is Nick doesn't respect these guys. Nick doesn't respect like Nick oh, acts no. like he loves. I mean, I mean, I just don't think that. Why doesn't he at their events? Why is it? I mean, I guess I saw Nick tweeting about Bay, so maybe he respects him. I don't know, but they're all like Bakes a felon, going to jail for multiple charges. Ethan's a felon, like you know. With his, Memphis micro penis. Like these are the, the and, and this is like I said, I, I like I like Nick, but Cozy, the whole Cozy bunch is a bunch of freaking losers with like binge porn and uh they're all federal informants yeah. that are all coming out of the pen. So I mean I don't I mean literally the biggest streamer on there is Ethan Rout besides Nick, and he is a ex-con that is America first by living in Mexico. So I mean go figure. That's how America I just don't first. get but why doesn't Nick just throw these bums? off like why doesn't he get rid of them and promote like vincent james yeah yeah, like, yeah. See, there's younger and... people exactly yeah, see, that's what and, and that's why i'm like nick is smart enough to realize this like we you guys because like you can people can make fun of nick all they want i get it but nick is smart i'm saying he is and he's like kind of uh you know has his finger on the pulse of what's going on but i just think cozy's so desperate that's why he has to put up people like ethan because he does have an audience so I think it's almost like a necessary evil. Yeah, I, I don't think. I I know. think he's now between you know a rock and a hard place where it's like he's basically he has these guys who are fucking re, like retards, like running his site now basically, and he's pushed away all the serious people who could actually help the movement of America first. Right now, I was telling Ashton, it's become Ralph's like website. Nick is paying thirty thousand dollars a month. For, for for Ralph and uh, Beardson and baked. And, ba- and baked, yeah, and baked Alaska. Uh, well, you think baked fucking only getting sixty days? Sixty days. Yeah, Shit. but you know what? I mean, I like don't get mad at me. Oh, you're making better than January sixty percent. I don't think he should have got any days, but I think he should have got thirty for basing that bouncer. But listen, I don't even care. He's in the sixty days, so he'll probably come out like it only give him more clout in a weird way. Uh, like you kind of benefit from that. It doesn't make sense. You wouldn't think that'd be the case, but I'm saying he's gonna come out like a hero to a bunch of autistic people. So <laughs> it is what it is. You know, he's gonna go I know it is, guys, seriously, they're gonna be like, Oh, this guy did more than you know, veteran. They're gonna give him all this clout for so it's it's stupid. It is what it is, but I just think that's the case. So, but but listen, when it comes to Baked Alaska, it comes to Ethan that they're all lifted up by Nick. So you guys can make fun of Nick, but like those guys wouldn't even exist. They wouldn't even have a platform to stream on. So he's true. The one that has out of, brain, out of any of those people. So that's that's what I'm saying. So that's what? why I'm a defending there. What do you think of Nick, though? Uh, he's, like, stopped streaming. He's sort of, like, I guess, not in hiding, but, like, I think he's just depressed. I think he's, like, now looking at what's happening. Kanye now married a Jewish woman. So, obviously, that just fucking threw all his, his shit under the bus, you know? <laughs> and, and I would have said this. I would have said this to Nick, so I say, but I probably didn't want to hear it. There's no way 
there's a saying, it's like, never meet your heroes. There's no way you're going to be, even though Kanye's all night, you know, first, that's almost worse. That's like a, like you're in the honeymoon state, and then you get all this goodness, and then it gets taken away from you, and you feel it's, de, you know, it's depressing, it's demoralizing. So there's just no way that it was going to end well. And, and that's the other thing, is like Nick and them, I, and Ali Alexander, they're so smart, but they know Kanye West has a 0% chance to become president of the United States. So for them to say that, I mean, they might call me out and say, Donald Trump had a 0% chance. It's just different. It's just different with Kanye. Oh, yeah. No, it's night and day. It's it's a night and day difference. I really think he married this Jewish woman, uh, and now he's going to, like, uh, separate from Nick. There's no way he's going to continue with Nick. He's going to go back to oh. his old life There's and no say, I had a mental yeah. breakdown. I was mentally ill. Please let me have my billions of dollars back, please. For the love of God. He's going to have a come-to-Jesus meeting, but, dude, this marriage is probably all fake. Like, he's doing it to, like, get Matt back at Kim Kardashian or something. This just shows you how screwed up Kanye West is. He's just randomly getting married. I mean, you know, I actually heard. There's nobody, no... would, nobody would recommend to get married after two months. Sorry, worse. No, no, I was going to say, yeah, you know. No. You brought it up. Apparently, there is no marriage certificate. Is that true? Yeah, it's probably all fake. Everything's fake. Like, dude, him and Kim Kardashian are married forever, but she had babies through surrogate. They lived in separate houses. Like, these Hollywood marriages are all fake. Like, maybe they bang a couple times. They're all set up by their agents. Like, you know, I'm obviously a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, but I just don't even think Kanye West is even banging that girl. To be, I mean, maybe he is a little bit, but I just... I don't know. It's all. It seems all kind of gay to me in a weird way. <laughs> she looks uh, just like Kim Kardashian. She's like a fucking clone of Kim K. Have you seen this woman? Yes. And the and the last girl he dated was a Kim K clone. So he's got this yeah. like thing that I I think he does it to piss off Kim. I don't think it's like like I don't think he actually is anti-Semitic. I just think he thinks Pete Davidson is Jewish, so that's why he has a lot. Of <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly. Well, no, have you heard the transcript of where he's saying to his friend, he's like, I've got a white Jewish boy with a nine-inch penis fucking my girl. Yeah, exactly. And what, like, help me. And you won't help me? There's a nine-inch monster dick Jewish man banging my girl, and you won't help me? What do I do? It's like a fucking nightmare. Oh, man. But this is... I remember I, I had this girlfriend and she said, you know, I, I like it that you're not too big because then we can do more positions. It's like, great. Thanks. Thanks, sweetheart. I mean, this this crazy modern thing where when you, when you go to bed with someone, she's had 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 lovers before you. And she'll know she'll probably have, you know, that many lovers after you. And so one of the, the few reliable predictors of how long a marriage will last is the number of sex partners that the woman has had. That's why overwhelmingly, I don't think men make women better by going to bed with them and giving them an injection of a penis, right? Ideally, your future wife has had zero previous lovers. She's had under five, you're in pretty good shape. But if she's had more than 10, in all likelihood, your marriage is going to end in divorce. And I, I don't know why that's so predictive, but uh, it's it's the one statistic that that seems to have very high explanatory power. Okay, Nathan Kopnis has has a good tweet here, responding to Kevin McDonald. And uh, Nathan Kopnis says, 
left. Here's a screenshot of my website. I link to every reply you wrote in this exchange, including a pre-retracted version of your Philosophia paper. Write screenshot of your website. You link only to your own writing. Yet you accuse me of cleverly preventing people from reading your paper. So looking at uh, Jonathan Otto Paul, he is uh, tweeting with regard to Nathan Kopnis. He he says that uh, you know Kopnis has just got it all wrong. And so let me read to you from the Otto Paul tweet. Since the HBD TARD, so Human Biodiversity TARD, Kopnis is again trending. Here's my rebuttal of his claim that all Jewish overrepresentation everywhere is solely the result of high IQ and geography. Never had anything to do with ethnic networking and in-group preference. Well, nowhere does Kopnis say that uh, Jewish overrepresentation everywhere is solely the result of high IQ and geography. So let's get back to the, the Kopnis paper. So Kevin McDonald would argue that Jewish intellectuals promote liberalism to undermine Gentile societies and to advance the evolutionary interests of Jews. Ken McDonald says that Jews were a necessary condition for the triumph of the intellectual left, late 20th century Western societies. Empirically, we can see that's false because many societies such as Sweden with a very tiny percentage of Jews, right, are even more to the left than the United States, Australia, and England. So Kopnis proposed the default hypothesis to explain Jewish overrepresentation in the leadership of liberal intellectual movements. Jews are overrepresented primarily because of high average IQ, secondarily because of their concentration in influential urban areas allows them to capitalize on their abilities. So you can have more cultural and political influence if you live in a big city, as opposed to when, you, when you're in an isolated country part. So despite being about 0.1% of the world population, Jews have been 44% of world chess champions, 25% of fields medalists in mathematics, 24% of the winners of Japan's Kyoto Prize, 26% of Nobel laureates in physics, 26% in physiology and medicine, 39% in economics, 19% in chemistry, 14% in literature. So many of the most prominent figures in art, business, politics are Jewish. Jews are frequently the leaders of movements with radically opposing aims, such as libertarianism and socialism. The default hypothesis says that Jews are overrepresented for the same reasons they are overrepresented in liberal movements as for other intellectual activities. And... Kafnis explicitly states that Jewish IQ, which is supposedly Ashkenazi IQ average is around 110, is not enough to explain Jewish achievement. Besides a geographic advantage, personality traits play a role in Jewish success. So there are more and less effective personality traits. If you're, if you're more extroverted than introverted, that will make for more success in the world. If you are conscientious as opposed to sloppy, you will have more success in the world. If you're low in neuroticism as opposed to high in neuroticism, you'll have more success in the world. If you're you know, above average in openness, you'll have more success in the world. What's the other one? Oh, and if you're at least average or above in agreeableness, generally speaking, you'll have more success in the world. So there are certain personality types that predispose one to success. And stereotypes do tend to have a basis in reality. Jews have been consistently stereotyped as having distinctive personalities, for example, being shrewd. So default hypothesis is not a unified theory of sociology, right? Jewish success is not purely explained by IQ and geography. So Koptus you know, make, makes that pretty clear in, in this paper. So I'm not sure where, where Jonathan Paul gets the idea that uh, Koptus claims that uh, the default hypothesis is the sole reason for, for Jewish success. 
Okay, here's an example of a Peter Zayer getting it really, really wrong. Go. What caused all this to be so poorly managed? Well, Russia has always been poorly managed and authoritarian. But under Putin, it's taken a much darker turn uh, because of the nature of the end of the Cold War. Uh, if you remember back to 1982, there was a coup in the Soviet Union. And Chernomyrdin and Andropov and Gorbachev were FSB, well, then KGB agents who basically overthrew the old system of Brezhnev and took over and try, because they were the only ones who really had a full understanding of what was going on. They controlled the information. Uh, they were not able to save the system, and so it Stop. broke. Now, this is not hyperbole, but this is a kind of... Um, distance from historical concreteness. Yeah, so Peter Zion is a very glib speaker, charismatic, glib, enthralling, compelling speaker, but he often gets uh, facts wrong, sometimes important facts wrong, such as here. That's really worth bringing out. Um, I'm going to give Zion the pass here on Chernomyrdin. Chernomyrdin was certainly in politics at the time, but he was young. He wasn't even a... Um, Minister of the gas industry yet, I don't think. He was gonna he was about to get that position toward the middle of the eighties. And Chernomirdin was later Prime Minister of Russia and uh, I believe ambassador, Russian ambassador to Ukraine. Peter gets a pass because he really means Chernenko, not Chernomirdin, and it's a slip of the tongue, and we've got to be clear about that. But Chernenko and Gorbachev were KGB agents. Really? For real? Um, Andropov was. Andropov was head of the KGB. And there was a coup. What kind of coup was there, Peter? Um, maybe Peter has a legitimate answer, but Brezhnev died. He wasn't overthrown. Um, and there were then significant changes, of course, of various kinds of interesting stories there. Andropov and Gorbachev had a kind of unlikely relationship. Andropov met Gorby in the late 60s, and um, they had challenges and disagreements, but um, he had a, an eye on Gorbachev, or a positive kind of eye. Um, meanwhile, Gorbachev was exasperated by Andropov's incapacity to analyze the situation as it really was. Um, but what Peter's coming out with here is something that uh, an historian or a political analyst of an academic kind really wouldn't say, because this is, this is um, uh, a cartoonification that is, is, is worth, really worth noting. Let's go on. And Putin is the... Yeah, so I really enjoy Peter Zion, but that is a great description of what he does. It's a cartoon version of reality. Successor to that legacy, because he was... And so sometimes a cartoon version is you know, relatively accurate, and sometimes it is far from accurate. Also in the KGB. And we're now in an environment that between the terminal demographic structure of the Soviet-slash-Russian system... And Putin's personal paranoia, so he's gone through and purged what was left of the KGB, FSB, of anyone who has personal ambitions to succeed him. We're left with an entire political elite of only about 130 people. And Putin has removed anyone who has leadership ambitions. 
Now, they all see the world the same way. They all kind of agree with Putin on what's at stake here. They all agree with what's at stake. That's unclear. I mean, how many people in Putin's Security Council would have started a full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Between zero and less than a handful, perhaps? But where Peter is right um, um, is that Putin, well, Putin's actually marvelous at picking people. He's very good at picking people. But he only picks people who are profoundly corrupt and profoundly loyal, which restricts the field. Um, And to that extent, Peter is right. But then Peter goes on to say something that is, again, hyperbolic, um, that there are 130 people in this sort of elite, and that Sechin is the only one out of them who could ever do a revolution or a coup against Putin. Um, But that if he did a coup against Putin, Peter says, then the um, rest of that elite would uh, stop him or punish him afterwards, get rid of him afterwards. Now, that could be an okay sort of use of hyperbole, but of course, if you took that literally, that's just a... Yeah, so Peter Zion, like like many very popular pundits and commentators and uh, livestream personalities, presents a, a hyperbolic, cartoonish version of reality, which a lot of fun to listen to, but you also want to get you know, a lot of uh, other sources. All right, he's not like a Russia expert, and, and he'll admit this. He isn't. He isn't a particularist. All right, he, he has a generalist uh, kind of kind of knowledge. Okay, a lot of good stuff on Steve Saylor's website. So I noticed after 2014, the, the Ferguson effect, the initial Ferguson effect, all sorts of my friends started going out and buying a lot more guns, uh, qualifying for concealed weapons permits, uh, getting security guard training so that they could then be part of a security team and legally carry guns and uh you now find stores in Los Angeles with a whole bunch of uh, more um, guards. And uh, Steve Saylor makes this point, a depoliced Los Angeles is an armed Los Angeles. So you go to all sorts of stores in downtown Los Angeles, you'll see all these armed guards, armed uniform guards, as well as more people carrying concealed weapons with or without permits. So the depolicing Black Lives Matter people dreamed they would have a society where crime would go down because police somehow caused crime but what they're creating is a society where everyone's armed, where neighborhood WhatsApp groups become essential for security, and even raw stores in downtown have armed guards and an entrance procedure. So whatever it is that the Black Lives Matter crowd wants to achieve, the reality is going to be a lot more like modern-day Lebanon rather than old days Sweden. So we'll basically go back to sundown towns where people don't go out after dark, and lots of private members-only events, private member shopping so we will become more and more like South Africa if this uh, depolicing trend continues. Okay, true diversity, says DC, will not be achieved until we can guess which content is a world star, which content is a world star hip hop worthy video. So, like, where the heck is is this happening? <laughs> Why 
Okay, so did that occur in Amsterdam, Atlanta, Adelaide? Well, it's Bavarian, Belgium, suburb of Antwerp near the Dutch border. And there's a news report. Bystanders film how girls get into a fight on Grok Markt. Local police start investigating. Well, they don't just film how the girls got into a fight. They film the fight. So the more diverse the society, less likely you are to have people who will step in and try to stop these fights. If you got some kind of you know fight going on between members of an out group, all right, you're not you're not very likely to want to you know step in and you know, get yourself hurt. Why would you, why would you risk getting hurt for someone who's not a member of your in-group? And so when there's one dominant in-group, you feel like society's your in-group, like the the entire nation state is your in-group. But when, when you stop having one dominant group, then people become less and less inclined to step in and try to prevent fighting. So people just step back, and now with the de-policing movement, right, police have less and less incentive to step in. So, yeah, people will stand around and watch. Why would they want to get involved when you have various outgroups who are going to war? Okay, the professor of economics with great jobs trying to take down a web forum for unemployed graduate students. So... Most academic disciplines, this UCLA writing, have an extremely unofficial job market rumors forum for anonymous, disgruntled, unemployed PhDs and grad students to discuss where they can get a job, along with topics of related interest, such as the shortcoming of professors with jobs. So these websites for the underemployed tend to be dominated by the concerns of the least privileged groups in today's academic hiring environments, such as white men. So topics such as affirmative action, which the media treats as sacred, right, are often rudely discussed. So the Economics Job Market Rumors Discussion Board is particularly disrespectful towards their betters since economics requires math skills and attracts less politically correct academics. So most economists are still on the left, but the ratio is about uh, two to one rather than 20 to one, as in other social sciences. So powerful economists, especially ones who've benefited from affirmative action, very much want to shut down this forum. And they they blame this forum for stopping the rise of Federal Reserve Governor Lisa Cook, her her nomination to a powerful place in the Federal Reserve, right? So she was confirmed, well, she was confirmed by the Senate in May in the face of a United Republican campaign against her. She's the new governor of the Federal Reserve Board, despite her only well-known paper on black patent holders of a century ago is an absolute confused fiasco. So she was nominated by Joe Biden as part of the Biden administration's campaign to nominate black women rates disproportionate to their share of the population, much less with regard to their share of qualifications. Just like he picked Kamala Harris for no other reason that she was black and a woman. Okay, let me play a little bit more here from uh, Vlad's analysis of uh, Peter Zion. So it's inappropriate to epistemically elevate somebody who said the war would happen over somebody who thought it might not without getting into further detail. Go. This is among the worst farmland in the world. And so they've never been able to generate enough income to have a road network. Everything has to be moved by rail. And their frontiers are just huge and they're open. And if you've got a force that can't maneuver itself, 
your only reasonable defense strategy is to be forward positioned and use geography to help you out. So you expand until you reach mountains or oceans or deserts, and then you anchor on either side of those and plug the access points. And stop. So as you listen, right, and I'm listening with you, don't think, is this guy getting this right? Is this guy getting it wrong? Um, because think of what the underlying ideology is in pub speak, in more sophisticated speak, the sort of um, evaluatively laden content underneath what Peter is saying. Are there some international relations theory assumptions there about how the causation of state actions is supposed to work, right? What are these assumptions? Might they not be wonky? How are they structuring what's being said? Okay, go. Unfortunately for Ukraine, there are two of those access points on the other side of Ukraine. So the Russians were always, always, always going to try to push through and retake that territory, territory that they had controlled for most of the last 350 years. And stop. Substantive flag here, but we'll we'll return. Go. Uh, unfortunately for them, in the 30, 35 years since the Soviet system collapsed, uh, the Ukrainians have developed an identity. And now they would like to be something other than a road bump. So one of the narratives that was going around was that the reason why Russia was pushing in the Ukraine NATO. is because NATO was moving their arms closer to the border of Russia. There, there is something to be said for that. Uh, you just have to put it into context to really understand it. So the Russian point of view is for us to be secure, we need to expand until we reach a point where invaders cannot overwhelm us. We have to be able to plug those access points. But to give the Russians what they want, you have to sign over the future of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Finland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania... Belarus, so many Ukraine. countries. Joe must think he's smoking. Oh, let's something. go on. Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, Kazakhstan—all the stands. Basically, the the Russians, in order to feel safe, you ha they have to be able to occupy total populations that are twice of their own. And I'm sorry, but that's just not feasible. So, you know, technically, the people who claim that NATO provoked this are correct. Uh, NATO can't have what it wants in Russia, in order for Russia to feel safe. But for Russia to feel safe, they've got to occupy. Over 180 million people. Stop. And that was never part of the game. A substantive flag for now. And we're going to carry on. And I think Peter's going to make a couple of points now. Go. Number one, the Russians are relatively casualty immune. They, they fight in an area where they fight with numbers. They've never been technologically advanced versus their peers. Uh, they've always just thrown bodies at it. And so there has stop. never been a conflict in Russian history where they have backed out without first losing um, half a million men. This is, this is fair. Um, insofar as we can put a number on it, this is always going to be a facetious enterprise to go that way. But I'm, I'm comfortable to say that Putin's capacity for more casualties on the Russian side is far from exhausted in the sort of ballpark Peter is talking about here. Half a million is reasonable. The piece two, uh, the Russians see this as an existential fight for their survival. They feel if they don't get those blocking positions, they're doomed. And they're probably right. But we now know that the Russians are fighting so badly. They're doing much worse than the Iraqis did in 1992. That if, really? Oh, yeah. If we had a direct fight now... 
Okay, who was right on COVID? Here's an interesting short video by John Stossel. Stay at home. That is the order tonight. Stay home. When COVID hit, experts were quick to tell us exactly what to do. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Turns out washing our hands doesn't protect us, but being outdoors does. At the beginning of the pandemic, experts told us, stay home. Yeah, so often people are outside for a walk, or people outside at the beach, like people swimming or kayaking or boating way offshore would get arrested, would get fined, would get sent home, when being outside is the healthiest place for you in an influenza pandemic. So there was you know, quite a lot of bad advice from public health authorities telling people to stay home when, generally speaking, being outside, particularly if you're not close to other people, is much healthier for you. Close schools. Don't wear masks. Do wear masks. Disinfect countertops. How to clean and disinfect your home. Now, three years later, we can say who was right and who was wrong. In Florida, the pandemic is raging. The media got a lot wrong. They repeatedly trashed Florida's governor for lifting lockdowns. Governor DeSantis is just acting irresponsibly. While praising New York's governor. Governor Cuomo is doing an amazing job. I'm wowed by what you did. The governor's brother gushed over New York's lockdowns and sneered at Florida's reopening. That's why states like Florida are in such dire straits. But Florida wasn't in dire straits. Florida and New York had about the same number of deaths. And if you take... Okay, that doesn't mean that their policies were equally effective, right? So warmer climate may play a role. We don't really know. There's a lot we still don't really know. Uh, New York, I would assume, is denser than Florida. So just because two geographic locations have the same number of deaths... Right. You need to see relative deaths. You need to know the relative age of the population. You need to know a lot more factors. So just because you have, say, different or the same number of deaths doesn't mean that uh, policies were, were clearly right. For example, Australia did much better with the Spanish flu in 1918, did much better vis-a-vis COVID in 2020. And so our relative geographic isolation, uh, the relatively less crowding in Australia may may play a significant role here. So you just can't conclude that uh, public health policies were better or worse, just simply taking one, one statistic, such as the number of deaths or even per capita deaths. Take age into account. Florida has more old people. Florida did better than New York. In general, three years later, we see little difference between states that opened up and those that didn't. In fact, the state... So he's talking as though that's the only variable, Right. We don't know what uh, predisposes one to, say, severe COVID infection. There's a lot we, we don't know. So geography, uh, density, uh, weather, there, there are a lot of factors that, that come into play. States with the fewest deaths are liberal Vermont and conservative Utah. Around the world, the experts and the media were just as wrong. Sweden's failed experiment. How their dangerous COVID gamble went wrong. Reporters trashed Sweden. Officials made the decision not to lock down, hoping it would lead to widespread immunity. But cases are surging. Cases were surging then. Deaths, too. But allowing people to develop immunity did pay off. Sweden ultimately did better than its neighbors. In fact, Sweden has had fewer excess deaths than most other countries, says the OECD. 
Did you hear about that from American media that tracks? So I think excess deaths is probably the most accurate way to understand how a country did vis-a-vis COVID, because that way you don't have to be concerned with whether or not the country was accurately tracking COVID deaths. Just look at excess deaths. Crashed Sweden? I didn't think so. Excess deaths, say researchers, deaths above the pre-COVID average. That's the best way to compare countries' COVID experience. So John Stossel is a libertarian, yet he had a thriving career on, I think, ABC News and also on Fox News. So you can get ahead. You can have success, all right, if you have dissident views. It all depends on other factors, such as your personality, on whether you're willing to play by the same rules, whether you're a team player, right? Just because you have dissident political views doesn't mean that, you know, success in public life is automatically denied to you. It's because some countries undercount COVID. A huge gap between reported deaths and COVID deaths. India reported fewer than a million deaths, but there were probably many more because there were 5 million excess deaths in India. Former Soviet countries undercounted too. The dictator of Belarus played hockey and said his country was COVID-free. Belarus and other former Soviet states claimed they did well. But excess death data show they did terribly. Maxim Lott maps this data and posts it at the website Maximum Truth. His COVID fudge factor reveals the communist culture of hiding the truth is alive and well. Here's the excess death data for the whole world. The dark-shaded countries like Russia, Bulgaria, and Peru did worst. Countries in gray mean there wasn't enough reliable data. Lighter places like Mongolia and Kenya did very well. I was surprised to see that Kenya and Togo and Sub-Saharan Africa did well. Surprised because Africa has low vaccination rates and less high-quality medical care. Lot says it's probably because their population's so young. COVID rarely harms young people. <laughs> what does the data say about countries like Australia, places that impose brutal lockdowns? For anyone who breaches quarantine, they face fines and even jail. The penalties ranging from as much as $50,000 in WA and... So compared to Australia's lockdowns, the United States had zero lockdowns, right? America's lockdowns were overwhelmingly voluntary, but Australia's lockdowns were enforced by law. There were fines from $5,000 to $50,000, prison sentences, right? America had no lockdowns when lockdown is meant as Australia carried out lockdowns. 12 months behind bars. Australia's rigid rules did save lives, partly because the island sealed its borders banning almost all travel. For two years, there was little COVID in Australia. But once almost every Australian was vaccinated, the government lifted its lockdown. COVID cases soared. Population adjusted. Australia now has had more COVID cases than the U.S., but far fewer deaths, partly because when Australia stopped its lockdown, Omicron was circulating, and the Omicron strain is less deadly. So by that measure, Australia had one-sixth the per capita death rate from COVID. Now, it's not necessarily automatically clear that this was related to government policy, though it seems likely. But there are also other factors, such as population density. It's easier to, to shut off travel to 
an isolated area like Australia compared to the United States or a European country. Were Australia's strict lockdowns worth it? You are bending my arm backwards. The average Australian lived two weeks longer because the country's strict rules limited COVID spread. But would you want to deal with Australia's authoritarian lockdown to live two weeks longer? I wouldn't. So here, here you've got a clash of values between Australians and Americans. So for Americans, the number one value is freedom. There are different understandings of freedom, but still the number one value is freedom. In Australia, the number one value is fairness. So Australians, generally speaking, thought it was unfair if we didn't do everything we could to you know, limit deaths from, from COVID. So along with this desire to protect life, all right, you get a lot more government restriction. So you give up a lot of freedom in exchange for a reduction in deaths. And this is a consistent Australian choice. Australia is definitely to the left of America in political terms because Australians are consistently willing to sacrifice liberty in exchange for fairness. And it turns out people in China don't want that either. They're chanting that they don't want COVID tests. They want freedom. Protesting is illegal in China, so these people risk their lives. Here, factory workers threw barricades at security guards and white hazmat suits. The workers have been forced to stay inside an iPhone factory for weeks to keep them safe from COVID. After the protests... China did a U-turn and lifted most of its severe COVID rules. What can America learn from all this? We now know that draconian lockdowns can save lives. But lockdowns hurt people financially. New York lost 400,000 jobs since the start of the pandemic. Florida gained 400,000. Also, kids in lockdown states suffered. Obesity increased in New York by five percentage points. Just because New York kept schools closed? Well, in Florida, where schools reopened sooner, obesity actually fell a little. Kids' education suffered an historic setback. Scores decreased by the largest amount ever recorded. In Sweden, which never closed its primary schools, kids suffered no learning loss. I get that we know more now. Three years ago, terrified politicians just wanted to... So America's greatest problem right now is violent crime. And uh, particularly in places like Chicago. <laughs> I think it was even like his wife was like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> that would be like with Lori, like, could anyone find or anyone? Or Gavin that, Newsom's yeah. in-laws who moved out yeah, of state. to Florida. <laughs> They're like, we're out of here. And, it, and then the other thing about a place like Chicago is not only do you have this horribly corrupt city that is run by a car- political cartel, but then you have an entire state that's attached to it that has basically loses like all political power because of the extraordinary power that that political cartel holds in Hey, I'm trying to run a show here. Okay, let's uh, say hello to Colin Liddell. Colin, how are you, sir? Hey, Luke, how are you? How are you doing these days? Good, mate. It's uh, it's been a little while, so I see you've been. Yeah, here. I guess I guess I guess I should wish you a a happy new year. Yes, and and, and to you, and I see you've been very busy with with Neocrap. So that that website's just you know. Pumping out new content on on a daily basis. Uh, tell me oh yeah, it's going from strength strength to strength. Definitely, it's on the up. But uh, you find this new this new format, this new website, uh, energizing? Uh, not energizing. No, I just find it quite easy. <laughs> you you don't get energy from you know publishing compelling content. I think I get energy from uh, eating a healthy diet. 
Okay. And uh, just out of curiosity, what, what constitutes a healthy diet for you? Oh, you know, the uh, the sushi and all that stuff, all that good stuff, tofu, you know, all that health food that we have out here. Yeah, I mean, Japanese tend to be you know, healthy. They, they lead long lives. Uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons to commend the, the Japanese diet. Is that fair? Um, yeah, yeah, I think uh, generally it's, a, it's quite a good healthy diet. Um, of course, they, they do get corrupted by foreign influences as well. So there's a lot of fast food in Tokyo. So, um, you know, but generally speaking, the, the Japanese are a lot thinner, a lot uh, leaner uh, than Westerners. So you can fit a lot more of them into a small space. Hmm. Uh what do you think is going on with uh, Jason Kessler? He's headed off in a new, is it neo-Nazi direction? Is that fair? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of keep tabs on people. So <clears throat> when they start to change direction, I, uh, I've i got some sort of reference points. And I, I do remember Jason Kessler from a few years ago. He was denouncing the neo-Nazi tendency in um uh, white nationalism, which, you know, to some people might sound like a contradiction in terms, but uh, I think they are distinctly different things. Being a white nationalist and being a, a neo-Nazi are quite different things. And, uh, you know, being a, a sort of identitarian, again, is um, a little bit different from being a white nationalist. I mean, you know, so all these, there, there are all these kind of interesting uh, gradations in uh, dissident right politics. And, a few years ago, um, I mean, especially in the aftermath of um, Charlottesville, uh, Kessler came out as a, a bit of a critic of uh, some of the um, kind of tomfoolery that uh, Richard Spencer got himself involved with, you know, that kind of uh, neo-Nazi posturing. And he was quite uh, severe about that. He, he made several videos in which he denounced Richard Spencer for uh, discrediting white nationalism through his um, Fed-like, inverted commas, neo-Nazi behavior. And uh, that was my kind of main reference point for Kessler. I thought this is a guy who's trying to be a bit more of a sensible white nationalist, trying to avoid uh, the kind of repugnant excesses that put off a lot of decent, normal people that you need to attract to your movement. And then in his most uh, recent videos, he's had Christopher Cantwell on as one of his guests. And then uh, just the other day, he, he, uh, he dropped this video where he's uh, using the uh, N-word and the F-word and uh, trying to kind of trash talk like, uh, you know, Alex Jones on acid. And, and it just um, sounded a, a bit uh, of a weird change of direction. So I'm, I'm, I was just thinking, what's going on there? And I did a piece on uh, Neocrat about that. And I also, you know, uh, exchanged a few tweets with uh, Kessler himself. And uh, uh, he soon sort of um, got very defensive and then blocked me. Mm. Uh, so some people say, better alert, better alert, with regard to Jason's new direction. Yeah, but it doesn't really matter. I, 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 the way I look at it is, you know, um, either you're a Fed or you may as well be a Fed. If you if you're doing something to uh, obviously discredits a movement and makes it uh, politically 
impotent and uh, trivializes it and marginalizes it, then you may as well be a Fed. You're actually doing the sort of job that uh, such, such a person would be uh, actually getting paid to do. But the, the only difference is you might be doing it for free. Yeah. Uh, is, is nationalism still a strong force in Japan? Um, nationalism has never been a strong force in Japan. Um, I don't think uh, Japanese would consider themselves to be nationalist in the kind of overt, conscious nationalist sense that uh, we have in the in the West, where you know nationalism kind of grows up um, as a kind of um, counterweight to other national forces. You know what I mean? So. In America, you have white nationalism. This is this is uh, largely because you have um, you know things like black nationalism, and so these things feed off each other. And you know, Japan, okay, it has a growing number of uh, you know foreigners, and uh, obviously in the future, yeah, it will have um, some of the diversity problems of the West. But um, for most of its uh, recent and uh, well, for most of its history, going all the way back, in fact, but, uh, you know, with particular emphasis on recent years, Japan has been a largely monocultural society. And the um, the foreign groups that have come into Japan have been groups that have tended to keep a quite a low profile and who haven't kind of contested the public space and the culture in the same way that uh, minorities in Western countries do. Mm. Now, Japan is, is rearming. That seems to be a significant change, is it not? Uh, yeah, I think they are uh, rearming. That's, um, there's plenty of statistics to um, suggest that's the case. And so this would require a more assertive Japan. Is it just simply a, a response to the, the growing threat of China and North Korea? Um, yeah, I think uh, the uh, the they are rearming a little bit, but um, because the Japanese military spends quite a lot of money anyway, because Japan is, um, I think, it's still the, um, the well, it is the third largest economy. Um, so a, a sort of um, couple of percentage points more on military spending is actually quite a large amount of money. And, uh, you know, Japan already has an extremely well-equipped well uh, national defense force. And uh, they're looking into getting all sorts of um, missiles that they can use to sort of dominate the uh, the sea lanes and the, um, the territory around Japan. So they are taking a kind of... Um, uh, this is directly related to what happened in uh, the Ukraine, of course, because, you know... Um, a lot of people were surprised by Putin's decision to uh, invade the Ukraine. Uh, on on several levels, it doesn't it doesn't really make much sense. It's a kind of um, a kind of irrational and unpredictable event, in other words. And so, because of that, we are now living in a new world where we can't just like um, think that people are going to act in a rational way. Uh, if Putin is prepared to act in a rather ir irrational way by launching this very um, destructive war, destructive not only for uh, 
parts of the Ukraine, but also it's very, very destructive for Russia. And then why wouldn't China possibly do something similar? And of course, Japan has to also worry about North Korea. So I think it's merited that, uh, you know, if, if these uh, non-democratic countries are prepared to suddenly lunge out like that, then Japan has to sort of step up and take its defense a little bit more seriously. And um, also, I think it's probably a good driver for the economy. Now, when I come to Australia, it, it makes certain American qualities stand out to me, such as like American optimism. So Australia and England are much more fatalistic countries than, than America. Uh, are, are the Japanese optimistic about the future of their country? Are they pessimistic? Any particular trend? Um, those sort of words seem sort of Western to me. I think um, the Japanese tend to be more stoical and um, realistic about things. Um, they they kind of they, um, Western people seem to channel things much through, uh, much more through their emotions. Um, and so the Japanese tend to, tend to have a kind of drier sense of reality. I feel. Hmm. I was less stunned. emotional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was I was stunned when China backed off its zero COVID policy, apparently in reaction to protests. Like one wouldn't think that uh, protests could could get China to change its policies, but uh, China backed off on zero COVID, seemingly in response to protests. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think the Chinese government, I think they were, um, I, I I feel that probably they were they were trying to do what they thought was the best thing. And uh, of course, being the Communist Party of China, that tended to be done in a slightly overzealous and heavy handed manner. And so, um, um, and also this policy was not really uh working that well i mean at first maybe it was effective but basically it prevented the uh population building up a resistance and um over time i think uh, they started to have more and more problems um the covid became much more um infectious and it was it was it was getting harder and harder to um to play this kind of mall game where you you kept uh, trying to hit them all every time it popped up, and that that policy was generally starting to fail already. I think, and on top of that, um, people were just sick to death of it. In addition to the policy not um, no longer being um, high, uh, very effective, and I think those two things combined, and the the uh, you know the um, people who run China, which is uh, Xi Jinping and his clique. They decided that this was um, involving them in some sort of political risk, and uh, it was time to um, kind of dial it down a bit and take a, a couple of steps back. And so, uh, I think uh, he's he's uh, sort of gone through a bit of, bit of a change of direction himself. And it also looks like China is backing off on its wolf warrior diplomacy. So we, we see several several empirical points that indicate a, a change in, in direction for, for China. So the most famous wolf warrior diplo- diplomat has been uh, shifted to a, a nothing position from, from a prominent position. Do you think 
that's significant? Oh, yeah, it's definitely significant. And again, it shows you the influence of what's happening in, in the Ukraine, because from the Japanese point of view, uh, the Ukraine means that uh, China may act in an irrational and unreasonable way. But uh, from the Chinese point of view, it, uh, it kind of means that um, maybe what the Russians tried um, was really stupid and we shouldn't even be thinking along the same lines. And so I think the Chinese um, are looking at, at to how Russia's fallen flat on its face in the Ukraine. And they're thinking, um, nah, we're not going to try that. If we if we try to do that against uh, Taiwan, it wouldn't really be a, a, the smartest thing we, we could do. So I think uh, they're learning the lesson of Russia's um, sort of um, abysmal performance in in uh, the Ukraine. Mm. And is there have there been any developments in the Russia versus Ukraine conflict? Well, Russia versus NATO increasingly over the past few months that you found interesting. Um, well, I think it sort of settled into a pattern quite a while ago now, and uh, that pattern is that um, the uh, the West has, has decided that um, the, the Ukraine will win. And uh, they will keep supplying the Ukraine with weapons. Uh, but at the same time, they don't want the Ukraine to um, win too suddenly or in, uh, to, or for Russia to be uh, completely humiliated. So they're sort of uh, holding back on a lot of the things they could uh, give the Ukrainians. And so I think there is a bit of a cons international consensus um, between um, Washington, Brussels, and Beijing, and also including NATO, obviously. And that consensus is that, um, you know, Russia is going to get beaten, but it's going to get uh, beaten at a, a more gradual pace. And the reason for that, of course, would be to avoid any kind of um, unexpected disasters that would uh, result from Russia militarily collapsing because that could lead to all sorts of um, possibilities, you know, with uh, various nuclear weapons going AWOL and uh, the country breaking into uh, competing fragments and who knows what could happen from all that chaos, you know. So I think the, the Chinese are um, maybe um, in some way they're kind of um, resolved to see Russia uh, lose also. They kind of realize that um, uh, Russia's probably going to lose this one. And the best thing they can do is to try to uh, stop um, this uh, loss being as, as cat cataclysmic as possible for Russia. And do you have any thoughts on Andrew Tate, uh, a male influencer arrested for sex trafficking in Romania? Um, yeah, probably. Uh, this, um, uh, I'd be curious to hear your take, though, Lou. What do you think about this whole Andrew Tate business? Because uh, you know, this is probably uh, uh, your area of expertise in a, in a manner of speaking. Uh, I, I think it is. And, and I also encountered this when I was reporting on the pornography industry, is that you meet a lot of repellent characters who are nonetheless have kind of a an animal cunning or, or sometimes a, a stunning clarity. So I find Andrew Tate repellent, but I, I recognize that he has a, a kind of charisma and cunning that 
that can be fascinating for, for some people. And so I, I would encounter these repellent characters in the pornography industry, and they would diagnose me more succinctly and accurately than, you know, elevated, you know, PhDs in psychology. They just, they just had, you know, an animal cunning. And uh, Andrew Tate strikes me as someone with an animal cunning. You wouldn't necessarily want him as a neighbor. You wouldn't necessarily want him mentoring your son. But we live in a very complicated world. And so even repellent characters often have uh, compelling insights precisely because they're willing to operate outside the bounds of what's socially acceptable. So Andrew Tate operates outside the bounds of what's socially acceptable, just like the, the alt-right did. And in the rise of the alt-right, had a lot of you know, funny, compelling, interesting, you know, fresh commentary. And I think that Andrew Tate, in all of his repulsiveness, uh, also had some you know, harsh truths about life and, and an animal-like cunning that uh, doesn't surprise me that thousands of people found compelling. Yeah, but is he any? I mean, in terms of um, kind of content, there's 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 nothing there that uh, like Rushvi wasn't doing several years ago. I, I guess that's true. I haven't taken in enough of his content. It's just that, uh, I mean, Andrew Tate seems to have been in a lot of fights, and I'm sure there's like a lot of like real world wisdom that you get from from being in in fights that. Uh, not really accessible to me to someone who hasn't hasn't experienced by it. So I, I don't know enough about Andrew Tate's content, but I, I did see this, you know, this weirdly compelling repellent uh, character. So it was his, his personality that, that stuck out to me rather than the, the profundity of his thought. Uh, yeah. I mean, to, to me, it's, uh, the repellent thing is, is, uh, is obvious. It's, um, he doesn't seem very charismatic to me, to be honest. Um, he doesn't seem very interesting to me. He's sort of repeating or parroting uh, manosphere talking points from like years and years ago. And um, maybe he's doing it slightly more efficiently or effectively in some respects. But um, I don't see the the appeal. And uh, maybe that's just me, but that, that leads me to suspect that uh, he's being boosted in some way. And, um, you know, people like that become popular because not because of their inherent uh, appeal, because, I mean, look at the Luke Ford show. The Luke Ford show is uh, probably the, the, the best show on the Internet. It's the most interesting show. It has the best guests it has the most uh, intelligent commentary, but it doesn't very it doesn't do very well because it's not boosted. And Andrew Tate, I mean, I don't think you, the Andrew Tate, um, I, I don't think Andrew Tate's live streams or his content would stand comparison with, with the Luke Ford show. Um, so it, it, it doesn't make sense why that uh, should be so popular compared to the Luke Ford show. So obviously that uh, it stands to reason that one is being heavily boosted by all sorts of bots and weird manipulations of the of social media and the other one isn't. Thank you. I, I think another factor here is that Andrew Tate probably talks to an audience with an average IQ of around 95 to, to 100. And it's it's very difficult to kind of comprehend what kind of content speaks to that IQ crowd. Do you think that that's part of it? Well, I, I think uh, there's a lot of um, um, weird shit going on on the internet. That's what I think. 
I think uh, other countries are trying to do what they can to kind of um, drive polarization in, in, in Western countries, especially in America, uh, also places like Britain, obviously. And I think um, when they when you when you see somebody like Andrew Tate being pushed or rising up um, or, uh, you know, all these these kind of these people who, who hit on the uh, the fault lines in our society. I mean, like uh, all these kind of uh, issues of, um, you know, these gender issues and how you should think about women and how you should treat women and, or, or try to get a woman or control a woman. All these things are very, they're highly contentious, high, highly divisive fault lines in our, in our uh, modern, much more uh, feminized society. So this is, this, to me, this looks like an attempt to, to basically stir the shit in Western societies. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, there's got to be something to that. Uh, speaking, it sort of, of, it sort of reminds me of um, the, the style. Just reminds me of England in, in certain ways. You know, uh, back in his heyday, not now because England's a uh, um, sort of pale ghost of himself now. Uh, Chuck, Chuck Johnson, uh, often referred to in the media as right wing trolls, an interesting character, recently did two shows with Richard Spencer and uh, Chuck Johnson is good friends with Matt Gates. He introduced Matt Gates to his wife. Uh, Chuck Johnson's a man of like real world accomplishments. Also someone who it's impossible to take, you know, 100% seriously. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on this Chuck Johnson character? Uh, not too many, not too many thoughts. I mean, I'm, I, I know vaguely um you know about him and what he's done and so on but i haven't really um uh, pinned him down really i haven't really gone into uh what he's done or looked at his um you know uh, various operations and so on so i'm i haven't um come to a conclusion on on chuck johnson yeah, it's just kind of weird that as he's talking to richard spencer he's like sharing text that he's getting from matt gates who's rising to prominence in the uh, House of Representatives for the Republican Party that he set up, Matt Gates with his wife, and he's having these conversations with Richard Spencer, and he has a very conspiratorial perspective on uh, Elon Musk and uh, Donald Trump and uh, other other billionaires. So with, with people like Johnson, my perspective is you can't automatically dismiss them and you can't automatically accept what, what they're saying. You have to just be highly selective. So sometimes people will have an insight here or you know, a piece of information, contacts that you don't have, and he can be you know, way ahead of the news sometimes, but also so much of what he has to say is just you know, impossible to, to validate. Uh, any thoughts on, the, on your Twitter experience since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's um, it's it's been a lot livelier. Um, you, I, I, I don't feel as um, nervous about saying certain normal things. I used, to, I mean, before uh, Elon Musk took over, you'd, you'd you'd actually tweet something quite normal, which you know most people would probably agree with. But you think, wait a minute, this might get me into trouble. And there's less of that now with Elon Musk. You think, okay, this is not actually uh, hate speech or something weird. This is just a normal kind of witty, uh, you know, comment or thought. 
which uh, most people can probably appreciate. So I don't have to worry about being um, banned for that now. You know what I mean? So there is that sense of freedom with uh, Elon Musk in charge. And and so I think um, the site does look livelier. Uh, I think there's more um, interaction going on. So I think uh, he's doing, from what I can tell, a, a quite a good job. Is there anything about Prince Harry and his new memoir and all the media attention that he's received that you found interesting? I haven't read the book, obviously. Um, I, I've kind of, I just try to avoid all this royal have spam i mean you know <clears throat> britain and british media is is full of royal spam and uh this is just the latest in, i mean this is like uh many many years ago when it was all lady diana this and lady diana that and princess of wales this and princess of wales that and it just became so bloody tedious and um i just get sick of the royal family because of this uh royal spam and uh, so what uh, Prince Harry had a little argument with his brother and people said some sort of little snidey remarks about Meghan or maybe they didn't or whatever. Who, who gives a fuck? It just bores me to death. And so I, I just try to avoid it as much as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, you've got to look at the kind of uh, yeah, you've got to look at it in a more meta way. And it is um, going to cause the, the royal family a lot of problems um this this sort of thing it just um uh, <clears throat> it's, it's just gonna co- constantly eat away at the royal family and uh remind people the royal family are just a bunch of nobodies like everybody else how would you compare the say english australian american attitudes towards the british royal family with japanese attitudes towards the emperor and his extended family well, yeah, the uh, the with with uh, the British royal family, uh, nothing is off limits. You know, if it happens and the media see it, it will get reported, and uh, it'll get over-reported, and then it will get you know uh, reheated and re- reported again and again and again. You know, so um, but with with the um, the Japanese royal family, there's a kind of um, respect for the royal family. Uh, the royal family don't push themselves too much, and at the same time, the um, you know, the uh, the country, the media, the society, uh, they there's a, there's there's a certain area that's off limits, and so they don't go into that, and they don't uh, if they find some if some some sort of um, em- embarrassing story came out, uh, the Japanese media would be very circumspect about actually running with it. And uh, there's various reasons for that. I mean, one possible reason is that uh, there are some kind of uh, ex- uh, extreme. Um, uh, how would you how would you describe them? Sort of um, um, ultra nationalist, but I mean, still, I don't, I don't want. I, I'm not comfortable using these Western this sort of Western terminology with with uh, uh, distinctly Japanese things. But there are these people who who deeply revere the emperor. Uh, has a kind of um, weird kind of cult or religion, and these people would be um, prepared to probably commit acts of violence if they felt the emperor was insulted in some way by uh, the mass media. So if um, the British royal family, if Prince Harry was actually uh, Prince Harry Hito of Japan, 
and uh, he was uh, dishonoring the royal family in this way and uh, being helped to do so by the uh, daily Yomuri or the Asahi Shimbun, then I could predict that probably some of those journalists involved might um, you know, come to an untimely end and uh, maybe even Prince Harry Hito himself. Now, as I understand it, Japan has very strict libel laws so that even publishing the truth, you can get into tremendous trouble. Is, is uh, Japanese news media considerably tamer than the English and American varieties? Oh, yeah, I'd say they, they're definitely um, a lot more polite um, when it comes to the, the, the good and the great. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the news media, I've noticed uh, Ron DeSantis is just getting all sorts of positive coverage in the mainstream news media. Even lefties like Joshua Green wrote an article about it for Business Week that was nothing but uh, positive. So do you think that the media would really love to see Donald Trump uh, finished as a political force in America? That's why they're currently boosting Ron DeSantis. But as soon as Ron DeSantis, say, gets a lock on the Republican nomination, they'll become a lot more savage. Yeah, that sounds like a, a reasonable thesis. Um, you know, tr- uh, I think Trump's very, he's limited in what he can do uh, politically because, uh, you know, uh, he, I mean, obviously he has his uh, cult following and uh, he can dominate the the, uh, the GOP, but uh, he's very compromised with the, uh, the sort of middle of the political spectrum with the floating voters that you need to get on side. And um, so I think um, there is a lot of... Um, Mm, there's there's a lot of interest aligned against him to you know for that reason um ron desantis he could be a, a kind of stalking horse to try to uh you know draw off some of that uh trump support um but the problem with desantis is that he he just comes across as this kind of dull leaden boring kind of personality you know what i mean so he doesn't have any of the um the kind of excitement or charm that uh, somebody like uh, Trump had and so I think um, yeah if they could if they could um, use him to sort of push Trump to the side a bit and and then uh, so that uh, you know DeSantis then became the main candidate uh, that would um, that would only end up with uh, DeSantis losing anyway so uh, I think um, yeah it's not a good um it's not a good uh sort of lookout for the republican party it's not it's not really shaping up well for them but uh, on but then having said that when you look at the democrat party that's not exactly very thrilling either i mean it's just like american politics is is just dying a death really isn't it i mean it's just full of all these unlikable boring um characters who who don't even seem to um function mentally very well does japan have anything close to america's culture wars or to the extent that japan has culture wars what what are they like Mm, culture wars um well i guess the um let's see 
Well, there is a kind of tendency to, um, you know, Japan sees itself as part of the, uh, you know, the kind of G7. And it doesn't want to be too out of step with the other G7 countries. And, of course, the other the other G7 countries are all these um, kind of woke, politically correct, uh, gay rights, feminist kind of countries. And so Japan thinks that uh, it should probably make a few token gestures to whatever seems to be popular in the other uh, six G7 countries. Mm-hmm. And has Japan been changed by the Abe assassination? Uh, not, not really, no. Not really, not in a deep way. I don't think so. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been a bit of focus on, you know, the links between religious groups and politics, but uh, that hasn't really gone anywhere important. It hasn't really led to any substantial changes. Um, you know, and Japan is still a pretty much a kind of one-party state because uh, the nobody else can really beat the uh, Liberal Democratic Party. Um, and it's all down to the various uh, groups and factions in the Liberal Democratic Party. I think Japan, probably more than countries in um, the other parts of the G7, they re- they recognize the fact that uh, politicians don't really uh, run the country. It's not really run by the, the politicians. The politicians are the front men. They're there to kind of sell ideas and to try to uh, create some sort of consensus with the voters, but they're not really the vital, important uh, um, players. I mean, the real players in Japan are the uh, permanent civil service and uh, various kind of corporate interests and uh, the um, uh, very, very important, this, uh, the idea that uh, Japan should be run as a harmonious society and that's very, very important. And that's probably even more, more important than uh, the corporations, this idea of social harmony. This is, this is the, tr- the true ruler of, of Japanese society, in my view. And who, who are the most important pundits or influencers in Japan? Do, do, you have, do you have gurus who have millions of followers in Japan and wield significant cultural and political influence? Um, oh, probably there are people like that who have uh, some sort of influence, but, um, you know, it's like, like I said, you know, there's the um, this underlying principle of, of unity and harmony, and uh, whoever speaks to that will tend to do well, and whoever speaks against that or veers away from that won't do so well. So, it's not really a, a question of personalities leading and driving uh, the political direction. It's more of a kind of, uh, you know, to to use one of one of the the uh, the old you know alternative right uh, phrases. There is very much a kind of hive mind at work in Japan. So when I listen to mainstream media sources, they they all say that uh, Ukraine is winning. When I listen to a certain type of dissident source, they they all say that uh, Russia is clearly winning. Uh, how does one distinguish who's right? 
Well, you um, you look at who takes over the ground. Um, and uh, in recent months, it's been the Ukraine. Uh, I think recently the Russians uh, managed to capture a salt mine somewhere, which is uh, kind of uh, <laughs> um, sort of telling in a way. Um, and I think, um, you know, this is just going to run and run. But basically, uh, I think it's been decided that uh, the Ukraine will win. And the the manner in which this will be affected will be simply through supplying the Ukraine with better and better weapons. And the Russian weapons are basically quite rubbish, quite crap by comparison, uh, outdated, uh, superseded. Um, the Russians still have a few cards up their sleeve. Obviously, they can uh, bomb their enemy with their missiles still. Um, but that just enables the Ukrainians to get more missile defense. And if the Ukrainians were able to return the favor, that would uh, put a different slant on things. Uh, so I, I just think, um, like I said earlier, I think uh, the uh, the West has decided that, you, that the Ukraine will win. Uh, but the only question is that they don't want um, is the only question is like how quickly and the the consensus, which kind of also includes the Chinese, is that uh, nothing too drastic or sudden should happen. It should be through a kind of process of kind of grinding down the Russian military. And I think um, Putin has destroyed a lot of his assets out of desperation. Uh, you know, he's, 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 he's kind of ripped up the social contract with the Russian people. And uh, the social contract with the Russian people was that, um, you know, uh, you won't be you won't bother me with um, um, democratic impulses and you'll uh, allow me to just run the country and I won't involve you in too much um, rubbish like, uh, you know, having to fight in foreign wars. And so there was a kind of social contract where Putin would get up to um, he would involve himself in these various international conflicts, but he wouldn't actually use the. Uh, conscripted Russian military to do that. And now he's sort of um, broken that contract. He's actually starting to call up more and more people. He's starting to put them into these horrible training camps uh, where the troops are very, very poorly provided with all the equipment they need, where their living conditions are abysmal, and uh, where a lot of them are coming home dead or uh, with limbs missing. And so I think the Russian people... Um, will at some point start to react against that. Although the Russian people do have a quite a kind of slavish mentality towards their, their rulers. Um, this can go on for quite some time because of the, uh, the endurance for tyranny that the Russian people have. I've been listening to a BBC Radio 4 podcast series called The New Gurus. And so you sometimes hear it talked about that we're living in an age of these new secular gurus like uh, Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein, uh, Jordan Peterson, and the like. Uh, do, do you think we're living in an age of the, the new secular gurus who have millions of followers? Do you think this is a significant cultural development? Mm, um, hmm. Well, um, 
I wonder about that. No, I'm not sure about that. Uh, it sounds like uh, somebody wants to have a theme for their podcast. That's what it sounds like uh, to me. Um, so, yeah, you've, if you have a podcast, you've got to have a, a kind of bit of a strap line, something to sell it. And that sounds like a, a kind of um, good way to to get a bit of attention. You know, let's call it the uh, the new gurus and there's always been people like that, I think. There's always been people ready to um, uh, give freely of their advice to the rest of mankind. And uh, sometimes they've been quite popular and um, they've, they've uh, gained quite large followings. I don't see anything particularly new about that or uh, particularly unique. So I, I think um, that's just a bit of a meme, really. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Uh, I had this interesting theory of charisma, which is related to this, and that the, the charismatic person is someone who does the impossible or the unlikely, and then because they accomplish one thing that you know people you know are astounded by, they then get more followers, and with more followers, they get more money, resources, information that then enables them to do something else that is extraordinary, and and then they build more followers, and then you know finally they fail. And, you know, they fall flat on their face. So think about, for example, the rise of Hitler. You know, initially Germany was going from success to success to success. And then, you know, finally he failed. Or Donald Trump, you know, he came out of nowhere, took the Republican nomination, became president of the United States, and then experienced a lot of failures. And so he's no longer seen as as quite so charismatic. Did you, uh, then another understanding of charisma that, that I like is that it's someone who gives you energy that talking to them, listening to them, watching them, you, you get energized and enthused and charged up. Do, do you have any thoughts on the characteristics of charisma? Yeah, that sounds um, that sounds kind of uh, close to it, I think. You know, like um, a charismatic person who is, is someone on the edge, you know, like like you, like you mentioned with the, um, the examples you gave, uh, Hitler and so on. Uh, somebody who does something, who succeeds at it, and then goes on to take another risk, another gamble. And so there's always that element of uh, somebody being on the edge. And that kind of compels our attention because uh, it's like a um, a kind of unwritten story. We don't know wh which way it's going to go, which way it's going to run. And is he going to win? Is he going to lose again? So that uh, sort of taps into our, uh, our sense of... Um, you know, vicarious delight. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, somebody like Richard Spencer had charisma because he was always going to do something a bit stupid and, oh my God, he's not going to try and do that, is he? Oh, he, he is. And, and that kind of, uh, you know, that does, that people find that entertaining and, and uh, compelling. And so definitely there is something to be said for that kind of instability of the charismatic personality. So I was listening to this, podcast, Alex Kashuta was interviewing a professor of classics who uses the moniker Athenian reactionary. And they were talking about how you know, Netflix is now our new internal programming, that when you get watch Netflix, you just, you know, you take it, you take in the, the Netflix perspective on the world and Netflix becomes the new software that operates your brain. And, you know, how difficult it is to to make, you know, independent decisions when we're getting bombarded by advertising and TV. And I'm highly skeptical of these claims. I don't believe that we evolved to be gullible. 
I believe that everyone, even the 95 IQ person, has pretty good defenses against being manipulated, imperfect defenses, but still, I don't see things like Netflix or the mainstream media, you know, becoming individuals' internal operating system. Uh, what do you think about the idea? Did we evolve to be gullible? Um. No, and I, I don't think that would. Uh, that's that's a bit of a softball question. Obviously not. You know, people um, people are quite suspicious by nature. Uh, most people are quite stupid, and um, when you're stupid, you have to be suspicious because you don't understand what the fuck's going on. And so I think, um, so, you know, I think people are a bit paranoid, and um, that's a sort of um, a way of uh, sort of saving bandwidth bandwidth as well. You know, you don't have to be so bright and intelligent and know what what's really going on if you're paranoid you can probably get some of the same good effects as a as a highly intelligent person who knows what exactly what's going on at, at the same time that we we tend to be very good at detecting when other people are trying to manipulate us we tend to be very bad at spotting the flaws in our own thinking and that's why it's so important to think socially to, for example, to do what we're doing, put our ideas out there and then get criticism, critique, additional information. Uh, so I've been doing this, this type of live stream. It, it's, you know, alerted me to all sorts of you know blind spots and flaws in, in my own thinking. And someone you've been thinking out loud for what, 25 years. Do you, do you have any thoughts on benefits and possibly the, the detriments of thinking out loud? Are you still there, Colin? Yes. Hi. Hi. Sorry. Yeah. No uh, yeah. Um, I, I think in our case, uh, though, we tend to get critiqued uh, by these sociopathic incel losers who who tend to follow our content. Uh, so that is a bit of a double-edged sword. And uh, but of course, we they they sometimes do say something pertinent and to the point, and uh, you know, um, because we're both highly intelligent, we can appreciate uh, the the good critiques from. Uh, the kind of more shit posty kind of uh, input. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to um, to kind of put your ideas out there. But I think it's also important to uh, be able to critique your own ideas yourself, to be your own uh, harshest critic. Are you do you find that you're able to do that effectively, as opposed to other people becoming your your harshest critic? I'm I'm much better at critiquing my own ideas and my own thought processes and my own content than um, probably all of my audience. I, I have to say, so yeah. I mean, that might sound a little bit uh, egotistical or arrogant, but I'm I'm really not trying to be either of those things. But uh, you know, it's just a fact. I I kind of know how my mental processes work, and I'm um, and I also know how you know. Uh, ideas are constructed and what can be cut out and what can be edited and what is essential and what is just dross. And so I think it's very important to cut out a lot of dross and uh, to cut out a lot of um, false ideas and to really test your ideas before you put them out there. And that's why I think writing is a lot better than, uh, you know, streaming and podcasting and 
you know, because when you when you just speak to people, you can just say kind of funny, witty things. You can just blow off all sorts of interest in sounding jargon and rhetoric and takes and so on. But uh, when you put it down on the page, you, you, you're kind of forced to clinically analyze it a lot more. And so I think writing is clearly superior to uh, the spoken word. So our educational system, whether in Australia, England, the United States, tends to be dominated by the left, and yet most people don't emerge from it as leftists. So I don't think that having a left-wing education system is actually changing that many minds. What do you think? Yeah, well, when I was... uh... I guess when I went to school quite a while ago now, um, I thought most of the uh, teachers were quite left-wing. Um, it didn't really seem to work too well on me, I have to say, going by one uh, isolated example. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, that's a tricky one. I it's hard to say because uh, you, you need to you need to have a lot of data. Yeah, you, you have to look at um, what's going on and uh, the attitudes of younger of, of the younger generation. And I think you could make the case either way. Possibly, it's easier to make the case that uh, all these left wing teachers, with their woke agenda, with their multicultural ideas, with their feminism and their transgender, um, you know, whatever. I th- uh, it, you could you could make the case that that is actually having some impact on the younger generation, uh, but there, there could be all sorts of all sorts of other reasons why the younger generation is um, believing what it believes or accepting what it what it accepts. Because I think there's a lot of passivity about certain things. I mean, like transgenderism. I think most people just um, give up. They don't they, they don't want to be involved um, refuting it even. They just think, okay, there's some very intense people who seriously believe in this. And if I uh, stand up and say the obvious thing, then I'm going to uh, attract a lot of um, unnecessary bother. So I think there's a lot of passivity in uh, the younger generation compared to, um, you know, the, um, well, my generation, which is Generation X. I think Generation X is up for a fight. But uh, the millennials and the Zoomers, they're... um, they seem to be a bit, um, what's the word? Um, they seem to, they seem to be trying to avoid um, dealing with 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 hassles. They, they don't like to uh, take a stand against a lot of things. They're quite happy to just uh, shrug their shoulders and say things like, uh, you know, "Okay, boomer," for example, which is just a refusal to engage. Um, and that kind of reminds me quite a lot of um, the, uh, the the hikikomori mentality that uh, you know Japan used to be famous for. The news media and the entertainment industry are also similarly dominated by the left. Uh, what do you think affects people's political views more? The educational system, the media, news, entertainment, industrial complex, uh, equally, what do you think? I think uh, it's just it's just reflecting um, the social trend, and I think the, the real social trend isn't left wing or right wing. I think those terms are um, uh, redundant now. 
I think uh, what we have is a less uh, disciplined society. And when you have a less disciplined society, when you're when the society is not uh, prepared to use um, force or threats to discipline people, then you have to move towards a more kind of uh, inclusivist and understanding kind of society. And that's more more or less what we see. We see this kind of, um, you know, I mean, like uh, you see this attitude to uh, to things like drug, drug addicts. Drug addicts used to be considered criminals. And now they're gen, gen, uh, increasingly uh, regarded as people who have uh, some kind of um, malady or uh, character flaw that can possibly be remedied by uh, showing them love and inclusion and understanding and, uh, you know, uh, assigning them the, 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 the correct social worker. And so that's sort of the ethos of our society. We're not, uh, we're no longer this kind of um, uh, attempt to regiment people and to use harsh moral, uh, a, a harsh moral tone uh, or strictures or, you know, so um, this has happened during my lifetime. When I was growing up, um, as a kid, you were expected to do this, that, and the other. And if you didn't, you, got, you, you tended to get belted and so on. And in my school, uh, when, I was, when I was a student at school, there was capital punishment. I mean, I've been caned and I've been, you know, belted on the hands and so on for various misdemeanors. And... Um, they obviously they uh, quite quite a while ago they they decided to to do away with things like capital oh, sorry they they decided to do away with things like corporal punishment and um you know that's just the the direction that society's moved in and so you have to have this more kind of uh, oh yeah we can't really criticize people for being gay we can't really say anything negative about the transgenders we can't use old-fashioned uh, Christian morality to shame people. And so I think that's the direction society's gone in. And uh, I think a lot of people on the on the uh, these so-called polarized uh, political tribes that, uh, that also exist, they, they try to view that in a very um, kind of limited way through this left-right spectrum. And I don't think that really explains what they're seeing do you pay much attention to sport and if so which ones um well i was i was a big fan of the uh the world cup i i was in, enjoying uh, uh scotland's triumph oh they they had a triumph oh yeah yeah we finally got our hands on the world cup Really? By infiltrating, yes, we infiltrated the Argentinian team. Didn't you notice McAllister? Oh, okay, didn't know. Yeah, one of the one of the top Argentinian players, a vital cog in the uh, world conquering machine, was uh, was was McAllister. You know, so obviously he's not Argentinian with a name like McAllister. Okay, but what about baseball? I mean, there's something very exciting going on with the English cricket team. They're scoring more runs per over than any cricket team in history. Yeah, I've, I've heard you occasionally talk about that, but it's just, uh, what was he talking about? What's, what, what the hell's cricket, you know? Now, I've got to go, though. Okay, so, you know, great to talk to you, Carl. Yeah, Classics. it's always fun.
Okay, cheers. Bye bye. Cheers. Cheers, Wayne. Bye bye. Okay, let me pull up here, get a little something. This is Alex Kashuta speaking with Athenian stranger, reactionary. Just that, right? Now it's gotten so much worse, you actually have to go congratulate them. Is what That's sort of the unwritten law, right? That's what they want to make into a, a law. That's why you have BLM people going into restaurants, demanding everyone hold a fist up and say Black Lives Matter. And no, none of them go to jail, right? But they'll ruin your eating. Um, but that, that's that's the problem. Is and, and that's what I wish people would understand more. That, that goes back to a lot of my efforts, at least on, for instance, with Twitter and elsewhere with philosophy, is when people have a more uh, robust understanding of these things, um, you're able to at least name the problem because once you can once you can put a face on the problem right once you can name the problem then there's a much better chance you're going to solve it but when people don't even know how to describe the problem right they just sort of have that sense that something's not right you're in a much worse off position as far as being able to solve the problem yeah that's that's a, a very profound point and i feel like because um our culture has kind of drifted into this very verbal direction very kind of image-based verbal direction it's you're kind of the um the burden of proof is essentially on you to verbally explain why something that you instinctively recoil from is wrong. And then, you know, with, with this type of stuff, um, it's, it's going to be hard. And people are just kind of, they've been trained to ignore any sort of... Doesn't it depend on what social circles you hang out in, right? Generally speaking, if you go to a normal job, you're not going to be called upon to explain your position on gay marriage or the transsexual revolution impulses um and say okay and this is this is some um kind of atavistic bullshit and then you know that's that's wrong wrong to wrong to to, to think that stuff and you know like like you said you know this is a movie that i saw is kind of an extreme example of this and now at this point you know at the point that i'm i am i, I can you know kind of safely say okay this is repellent you know I, I recoil from it and i don't feel bad about it but you know like i said there were phases in my life where i would have uh maybe known that there was something off about it and not really it wouldn't have been clear to me it was just like okay yeah this is something is wrong here um and there have been moments where i would have been yeah you go girl this is you know this is this is exactly what you should do you know this sounds great so yeah i think it's it's yeah this, this absolute confusion with how um how things should be so yeah i mean so alex kashuda may indeed have essays and podcasts where she says things that are wise she's quite pleasant to listen to but there doesn't seem to be much content there you're, you're doing god's work in, in that sense because um yeah this um, people have thought about this for thousands of years and they had much, much clearer ideas about this uh, thousands of years ago. Yeah, that's what's amazing is people don't realize when, for instance, you hear that phrase, live your best life. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just a, it's a silly slogan. And it's, I've never heard it used except when people are doing just really dumb things. Uh, and they, you know, like, uh, that's what they say about that Lizzo woman who's uh, probably got, she probably can't feel her feet because she's so overweight. Uh, but they're telling us that it's beautiful. Uh, she tried to lose weight. Apparently her fans uh, and everyone attacked her for trying to lose weight. Uh, she came to back and now they tell her that everyone says she's living her best life, right? When she's, she's playing a flute, uh, supposedly a historically sacred flute and, a, and almost naked. I mean, for what, for all I know, she was naked. I mean, because she's so obese, it covers up whatever little she might be wearing. And they simply say that she's wearing, she's living her best life. Uh, no, that's, that's not living your best life. That's, that's someone giving a slogan to being able to live any life at all that they want. And again, that's, we're in the realm of nihilism. Okay. I gotta admit, I think, uh, Athenian reactionary there has something something that he's, he's right about. All right, uh, Laura Luma tweets, Nick Fuentes is my friend. He has a right to free speech just as much as anyone. We've become great friends over the last five years. We've both found common ground and formed a bond over being deplatformed and having our civil rights violated by the FBI and hey, Tech. Listen, I'm just such a sucker for her. <sighs> Not that we're anti-Jewish. You know, I love Jewish people, okay, like Laura Loomer beautiful and bold and courageous and I'm just such a sucker for her.
<sighs> Not that we're anti-Jewish. You know, I love Jewish people. Okay, like Laura Loomer. Beautiful. So that was a show from Nick Fuentes a couple of days ago. Nick endorsed me when I ran for Congress. That's Republican Jewish Committee, an APAC campaign against me, even though I'm a Jewish American who's been a registered Republican my entire life. They do not use their money for what they claim. So who is my real friend? And then here is CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. Real world data. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real world data. Okay, obviously a really stupid thing for her to say, and uh, even public health officials who are generally right, that they say stupid things because they're human, and that was really stupid thing to say, and now it's not disqualifying for all you know, public health advice. Right, what's going on with our energy? Because I'm seeing all these reports of all these crazy storms. It's hard to tell if our winter is warm or cold, but it is the case that natural gas prices here in the United States have come down. And that does have in part to do with the weather. You know, it, it, hey. is that a lot of the natural gas that the United States is pumping in Louisiana and Texas is going right into export terminals because the United States does not have a pipeline infrastructure to get its natural gas, say, from Texas to the East Coast. So in the East Coast, you're right, the weather matters more for natural gas prices than what they're pumping out in, uh, in Texas. There's a lot of infrastructure problems that still have to get solved in this country. Yeah, so here in New York, for instance, uh, where there's a, a shortage of natural gas because we don't have the pipelines to deliver it, you're saying that people could be seeing lower natural gas prices if they wanted to build a pipeline. Uh, if there were pipelines, but as we've seen with Keystone, which is on and off and on and off, it seems like with every... Come on. Try to run a show here. High-quality production. What the hell? Man, can't get those pirated Fox News... And that also like happens to be a task with transmission lines for some of the green energy uh, that that we're talking about. Uh, you know, when it comes to, to wind or solar, a lot of people don't want these power structures in their backyard. So yeah. while the United States is sitting on a lot of energy on private land, not on federal land, uh, we've been slow to build the infrastructure that's necessary to keep those prices down. John Hilsenrath. John, thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Okay, thanks, guys. All right, let's get back to Alex Kashuta here speaking with reactionary uh, Athenian stranger, he's a professor of the classics. Because if, if, if all lives are equal, right, if any possible life that one could live is equal, then there's no such thing as the good life, right? What is it? They would say, well, what is the good, right? And this is the question that, you know, philosophy, classical philosophy, seeks to help people provide answers for, or at least help them to better articulate the questions that are worth asking and then spend your life pursuing them, right? You would never think, for instance, that mere pleasure is the good life, right? The life of just someone who lives for hedonistic reasons, right? It's, everything is just a kind of a pleasure calculus or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, think, I mean, it's, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying that I feel like people underestimate how much um, hedonism is essentially slavery to to the senses. It's just, it's, it's an extremely dependent life. And especially now with all these very sophisticated forms of, of uh, dopamine management, uh, it, it is literal slavery. And, you know, alcoholics know this because it's kind of more traditional drug, but there are many, many other types of 
alcohol-like things out there. Like, you know, just you know, know someone kind of in my, in my larger circle who's addicted to slot machines and they're unable to, to work properly. They have to be at the slots, you know, at noon every day, you know, they're, they're mishandling their family, they're mishandling their business. You know, that's it. That's the thing. Um, they haven't been able to quit for years and it's probably, it's all going downhill from here. It's, it's just, it's, it's terrible. And this is, you know, this is kind of, slots, slots are not, nothing new, but there's a certain, you know, things have evolved to a point where even the slots are essentially kind of video gamified and they're, they're quite, they're quite more sophisticated than they used to be. Uh, and obviously more addictive because that's, that's the name of the game. That's the business. So it's, uh, it's, it's really scary. Yeah. That's why I like, uh, I like using that word intoxication because, um, it, it can refer to anything that has to do with kind of overwhelming the pleasures or something like that. I, I saw this kid blow up at a grocery store on his own mom one time and in front of everyone, he had no shame. I mean, this was a high school kid for God's sake. Had to, there's no way he was younger than like, you know, 15 or 16. And it was all because he wanted hot pockets. Like she had gotten him a, fr- she put a frozen pizza in the, in the grocery cart and he just exploded in front of everyone because he demanded uh, hot pockets. And again, that goes back to that Thucydides reference I made where he says uh, the, the word that Thucydides uses is eros, uh, uh, an erotic madness swooped down over the entirety of the Athenians. And just sort of, they were all intoxicated, intoxicated with this longing for something that if cooler heads would prevail, uh, they wouldn't have chosen. And, and we see this, this intoxication with all of these various pleasures and hedonism, right? That's, that's really what's at the root of all this sexual deviancy that we're seeing. Uh, you know, I mean, they've, they've even got the, I mean, it's almost like you, you want to, I, I personally wonder how much longer RuPaul will be alive. Uh, it's, it seems like that guy has been around forever. He's been plaguing society forever. Now he's got his drag queen show there. Uh, Trudeau was on it, I think. Uh, and Pelosi was on it. Like everyone has to go on this, this insane, stupid drag queen show because they want to show that they're tolerant of trannies and stuff. Uh, and receive their blessings from saint paul yeah exactly exactly uh and really that's just uh, that's just another madness a, a kind of mad intoxication with with these sorts of uh deviancies i mean that that's why in the same way that we we know that alcoholics need help and we used to know that these sexual deviants needed help now we celebrate them as you know uh, not victims but champions right we that bruce jenner guy uh, gets a parade or something like that uh, yeah, from conservatives as well exactly that's- exactly i mean it's I mean, how many people really celebrate these deviants? That's containment in action. I rarely do see something so, you know, platonic ideal of containment, Caitlyn Jenner. It was amazing. I actually saw him. They, they, they brought him on. Okay, that's too depressing. All right, this is Kofa Fee talking about, talking again with Alex Kishuta. Anybody else takes is wrong against us. And, and, it, and it shows, it, it, it replicates constantly because they have, they have the same pattern, they have the same power seeking. But the point is that's the, 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 the one way of doing it is you're raising the flag and trying to get, trying to get you know, somebody to, to take up your cause. That's why you seek and that's why you can conform to, American, to Americanism and to the, you know, to the GA or, or GNC is the uh, more edgy phrasing of it, which I'm not going to say what that stands for on this Very Nice Family podcast. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, but you know that 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 sort of ties in, and then the second way is that just by agreeing with the progressive ideology, you form the most. You have the most powerful thing in the world, which is coordination, and coordination is the most powerful thing in the world, the most powerful thing there is. You know, weapons are nice. Weapons don't do a thing unless everybody agrees to fight. You know. Yeah, and, you know, and weapons, the... weapons lose to coordination. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just a the, the interesting part of it, and why a lot of people. Um, don't seem to see it. I mean, it's just because it is invisible. It really kind of sinks into the background. Like if I if I confront someone with progressive views that, you know, have absorbed them through the internet here, they really don't see it. They don't even see them as their views. They really just see them as, you know, the basic operating system of the world. You know, this is absolute common sense. You know, it's all... Don't we all think that our hero system is objectively true and is the basic operating system of not just the world, the universe. So I don't think progressives are any different than Orthodox Jews 
leaving Christians, hardcore libertarians, and the like. Also, I don't have the shine of, of expertise. Um, it's it really disappears in the back. That's even harder to challenge. It's not like you can just sit down and you know we're gonna we're gonna debate these ideas in the marketplace. I, I really think the marketplace of ideas might work within I don't know maybe some very specific autistic academic subdisciplines, but in in things that are considered the water you swim in, you can't even get a, a, an angle like your lever will not. There is no no hooking point for for you to start you know tearing down these ideas like people will have to yeah. go through some sort of dark night of the soul in a way that's kind of what i went through you know i had to kind of see things in reality you know be autistic enough to to you know go against my my you know kernel of agreeableness to actually say okay this is fucked up so i'm, I'm gonna you know see see what's, what's going on with this stuff so yeah it, it really is a is a very hard thing to do like the the deprogramming of the normies is, a, is i feel like a, a doomed a doomed plan Oh, it's doomed. It's doomed. I mean, you can't deprogram all the normies, but the normies are... I don't know. Just empirically, it seems most people get deprogrammed and red-pilled. They go on to make a bigger mess of things than uh, before they took the red pill. Not sure why that is. It shouldn't work out that way. We're sensible. Can we, can we put... Let's, let's put a pin, if you remind me, we can circle back on the marketplace of ideas, because I actually... I don't know if you, you've seen my posting on that. I've actually posted pretty... Uh, like, I have, a, I have a, a, a relatively developed idea about that, but oh, you, nice, you yeah. touched on something else. But you touched on something else that that is exactly in my in my notes for that I prepared for uh, that I decided I, uh, things that things I kind of wanted to talk about, and it's it's that the progressives see their worldview as not a worldview; they see it as just the way the world is. And, and it... yeah, doesn't everyone? But everyone sees the world through their hero system. Orthodox Jews don't think, "Oh, this is my hero system," and. Believing Christians don't think this is my hero system, and believing libertarians don't think this is my hero system. We all think that our hero system is objectively true. The extension of that is is something I'll just call like I'll temporarily call it the progressive passive voice. The progressive in a conflict is never takes an action. Things happen that that meet. Okay, but I think that's also true for conservatives, right? We all have a particular in group. I hope. And we all have a, a worldview, a hero system. And if people with our hero system act badly, it's because all these outside forces have essentially forced them to do so. And, and then he takes the action of shooting people who were not taking actions in charging at him with guns and trying to kill him. Talking about Kyle Rittenhouse. That was just something that happened. They charged at him with guns, and that wasn't a thing that, that they chose to do. That was just something they had to do that. How could it not happen? Kyle Rittenhouse's existence was a, was a provocation to these people. So it's all, every bit of this in, in the macro and in the micro reflects the fact that the progressives have a framing where everyone on the progressive side is passive and everyone against the progressives is active, right? So, okay. Yeah, no, so I mean, here for reaction. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. And I think, you know, it's, it's obviously a convenient framing, but it's, I think it's also downstream from the fact that you know the the way they see criminals uh criminality the way they see minorities as well like it, it doesn't paint a very pretty picture um you know the, this this complete passivity you know just uh i mean it, it really is essentially the, the 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 final model there is is um kind of a skinner box type thing where you know this, these people are animals and you know the the yeah. elements around them you know the wind is blowing so of course the dog will bite um uh, you know that's that's you know it's not not very flattering if you really consider it uh, but yeah, I mean that's that's you know that, that makes a lot of sense. But they're not they're not even they're not even 
consistent on that. If if you if you want to be that charitable to them, which you know I'm not I'm not always in the mood to be, but if you want to be that charitable to them, they're not even consistent with that because it's like it's like it's like SBF, uh, Sam Baker Fried's mother, I believe, or his, his aunt has a piece and 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 not in my notes, so I might get some details wrong. His aunt had a piece about Steve Saylor wrote about it on on the Unge Review, and his aunt had a piece about uh, how criminals things that they do aren't their fault, and so therefore we. Should yeah, a lot of people believe that uh, free will is an illusion, right? And this was Sam Bankman frieds mother. Now, whether or not they're phys- philosophically correct, we have to live and hold people accountable as though they have free will. There's just no other way to construct a life and construct a community. You know, what do you do with a man who can't live in society without constantly attacking people? Well, the traditional choice among every civilization that has ever existed in all of human history is you execute him and you put his head on a spike outside the city walls to warn people that that's not acceptable behavior. Of the yeah. point that we've arrived to, I mean, this, you know, you, you have a forest with a lot of deadwood. I mean, I'm, I'm really, you know, forcing some metaphors into this, but it's just, you know, it, it cannot thrive. It cannot go anywhere. You know, if, if you're only... Um, uh, criterion of success for your civilization is the maximization of, of any wood in your forest, you know, that's going to turn into, into a wasteland. And um, yeah, I mean, take, take from that whatever you, you will. But the fact that there are no limiting conditions yeah. on our civilization in that way is, is insane. It just doesn't work that way. You know, it's... Okay, I think I need to pay closer attention to the wildcard wild card, uh, contest. We had Buffalo just scraping by Miami, shockingly close, 34-31. And uh, right now, it looks like the New York Giants are up on the Minnesota Vikings. It is currently 10.58 a.m., 10.59 a.m., January 16th, 2023, here in Sydney. Maybe I'll just go on for a few more minutes. You have no civilization. You have no way to enforce decivilizational processes. Well, you know what? This is a perfect transition to the, to the, to the, to the next thing is, is, okay, so no one on their side is thinking about civilization. Everyone on their side is thinking about Okay, so wait, I paused. Okay, so so there are three classical forms of government and of governance of everything that Aristotle talks about. You can you can have a, a monarch, monarchical type government. You can have an oligarchical type government where it's governed by a few people, or you can have a, a democratic style where you vote on things to do. Right, and in an oligarchic type government, in an oligarchic type government, it almost immediately breaks down in a very specific way. And the very specific way that it breaks down is no one in an oligarchical government governance style has any incentive to worry about the actual whole of the system itself. No one worries about, hey, what exactly are we doing with our civilization for the eight, for the eight hundred people that were on the Zoom call, you know, the, the post election Zoom call. No one worries about what's going on with their civilization. Everyone on that call is, how do I make sure I'm one of the 800 people who get invited to the Zoom to the Zoom thing? So the result is the progressive system creates a, a self-reinforcing loop and no one inside the thing. Don't all strong in-group communities create self-reinforcing loops? And certainly that way in Orthodox Judaism, certainly that way in Christianity, Islam. I'm sure it's that way when you grow up in Japan. Can move the move the progressive machine in any way, shape, or form, because the name of someone who tries to move the progressive machine towards sanity is called a conservative, because he abandons progressivism, and conservatives are totally ineffectual, because they're like, I want progressivism up to the point where it got uncomfortable for me. So no one can move progressivism towards towards sanity. So we have a, a civilization dedicated, in your analogy, to populating the woods with dead wood because the total biomass gets counted and 
gets power to the person who puts the most wood in the forest, right? So all the individual people are competing with the others, and somebody who stops and says, no, this is a bad idea, we should stop loading this forest down with dead wood, doesn't get them to stop, but he just gets to lose his position to the other people who want to put more and more dead wood in there. So we're, yeah. we're on this course towards destruction, and there's no way of avoiding it, and there's no one within the system that can act against it. You know, and the, the idea of, and again, I'll, I'll pitch the, uh, the NRX idea of monarchy, is basically that a king who is in charge of the system as a whole has an incentive to look over the value of the system as a whole because of the system as a whole. So I think it's way too simple to, to decide, oh, we're just in a representative democracy, or we're just in an oligarchy, or we're just in a dictatorship. All right, we're in all of those, and we have socialist elements. All right, uh, we have capitalist elements. The world's a complicated place. Okay, I'm going to say goodbye for now. Talk to you later. Bye bye. <laughs>